Hello, and welcome to Creative Life Lessons, a podcast that takes a hard look at what it takes to build a creatively fulfilling life and career. I'm your host, Lyle Schemmer, and today we'll be talking to an advertising copywriter and creative director who went beyond the confines of the ad industry to become a published short story writer and filmmaker. His career began at the legendary DDB New York and has since included stints at the also legendary but now defunct Grayson Rothschild, Euro RSCG, and J. Walter Thompson, where we sat next to each other in the same cube farm. He's worked on everything from Volvo to Intel to Tylenol, and his literary work has been published by the Monarch Review, Word Riot, and the Borough Press, amongst others. The film Thump, which is based on one of his short stories, will be released later this year. Welcome to the podcast, Larry Silberfine. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Lyle. I'm really uh, happy to have you. You are the sort of inaugural guest on this experiment, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to be part of this. I guess we'll start. You know, I, I think you're a really interesting story of, of somebody breaking into the ad business because you never grew up thinking, I want to make commercials. And in fact, you started off as a CPA of all things, and kind of fell into the business as a copywriter. So I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about what that journey looked like and sort of how you how you arrived at this present moment. So it was totally an accident. I started off wanting to be an accountant, not because I knew what it was, but uh, every time I said the word, my family got very excited. So I got excited. I'm like, I don't know what I'm getting excited about, but that's good. If that got them happy, I'm in. So I took a lot of accounting classes, but right before my last uh, semester, I took a poetry class and um, I seemed to show a flair for poetry and death seemed to be my specialty. So I started to write poems and I, you know, I did well in the class and the teacher took me and a few other kids, other classmates into and did private sessions. And suddenly I realized that I never really was that interested in creating anything creative until then. And suddenly it just like opened up a whole nother world for me. And I'm like, this is far more interesting. So that was the beginning of, I made a mistake. My parents just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars sending me to college for accounting. And now I realized I shouldn't be an accountant. Yeah. And I I guess how much did you sort of know at that point about what the industry looked like and and how do you go about breaking in and and getting your foot in the door? Like, what did that process look like? Well, I had no idea what I was doing. So misery sometimes can be uh, a great motivator. So I was miserable and a friend of mine was in advertising. He was my best friend for like, at the time it was for like 40 years or whatever. Uh, Well, maybe not that long. Um, he said, you'd be good in advertising. And I kind of just took him at his word. I had no idea what it was, but I just quit accounting and I started to go to SVA and take classes. Again, not really knowing what I was doing. I just started taking classes and I left myself with no option because I, I almost had to, I had to make it work because there was no, nothing else I could do after that. Yeah. So really not giving yourself a plan B is a, is part of the plan. (laughs) The secret is to have no option, but to make something, even now I don't really have a plan B, but yeah, I had, I just assumed I'd be successful, which is odd. It's not like I'm one to be so cocky or self-assured and like, oh, this will definitely work out. I just, for some reason figured I'll, I'll make it work. So where was, where was like your first, your first opportunity? I mean, how did that come to pass? Well, well, first I should say, while I was taking classes, I worked at all kinds of bizarre places. Like I worked at Macy's in the Christmas department. I worked at a video store. 
where I don't know if you want to go into this, but I, I accidentally sold an X-rated video to somebody and it got captured on the Channel 7 News. We don't have to go into that. I mean, I might still be after me for that. So after all that, um, it took me two years. I put a book together and I actually got my first job by winning a contest. Dancer had this writing contest and um, yeah, it's not like they just picked me out of a hat or something, but they had this contest and you had to invent a new product. And my product was a mood yarmulke, was the product that I invented. So if you wore this yarmulke and it would, depending on your mood, the yarmulke would change colors. So I don't know how that got my foot in the door. And we had to come up with an ad and there was a few other things, but that's how I started. I won a contest, really. It's funny to hear you talking about you had this sort of slew of jobs that had nothing to do with advertising. And I think that there's an interesting sort of thread there because you think about like, you know, David Ogilvy, he didn't get into advertising until he was 40. He was like a chef. He was a, um, a vacuum cleaner salesman. He had all these crazy jobs that just sort of everything you do outside of advertising kind of makes you better at advertising ultimately. And it becomes this sort of place with all these sort of misfit toys kind of come together and this sort of amalgam of crazy diverse experiences gets brought to bear in, in an agency. And that's kind of where the magic starts. You know, I mean, I even think like my mentor, Neil French, you know, it was like a matador, pornographer, rent collector, uh, you know, and, and it's just understanding real people, understanding the mindset of people, the politically incorrect, the, right. the, wor- the working people. I think that just that insight is just really invaluable. Sort of moving along then, what does creativity mean to you and, and why do you think you're creative? Well, I, that's, I don't know if I necessarily see myself as creative. I, I always see everything as a a problem to solve. And I think that probably started a childhood. I was just obsessed with solving problems, whether they were problems personally, you know, with my family or uh, in life. I was just, I love, for example, I loved Legos and Lincoln logs and stuff like that. I loved having pieces and trying to figure out how to put them together. So I never really saw that as creative more than just like almost, it's almost like math and how to put it together. And it's just something that I I still love to do. And I guess the creative part is there, but I don't really think about that part. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. I mean, you know, I think certainly one of the things that is too often absent in the agency business is the clear definition of a problem to solve, you know, like strategic planning and not really framing the problem in the most clear way possible. And I think that the idea that like a creative person just needs a very tightly defined problem to solve as the sort of impetus for, for having an idea or having an answer, having a solution is really, I mean, it's interesting to see that you were sort of doing that from a very young age, you know? Well, it's sort of like bowling to me, like when um, they put the guardrails up and you do much better because you have some kind of definition. So even if you bounce off the sides, you'll hit the pins. I need guardrails. Uh, I need some kind of like, it has to work with the, between these two points for me to actually be to free, feel free to solve mm-hmm. something. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, you've, you've heard that the, 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 the tighter, the more constrictive, the brief, the, the bigger, the, the explosion. And I, I think, I think you're, you're, you're just speaking to that in a, in a really sort of bowling as a metaphor sort of way. Never thought I'd, <laughs> I never thought I'd use bowling as a metaphor. So, <laughs> 
you know, one of the things that's been one of your sort of most salient features, I think, is your sort of neurosis. You know, high, you're one of like the most neurotic New York neurotic people that I've I've probably met. Do, do you think that this this neuroticism has been sort of critical to your success as a creative? Like, there's just this 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 angst, unease, this tension is something that is is the Larry Silberfine secret sauce. I think it might be the secret sauce for a lot of people in advertising, but um. I think when I don't feel angst, I feel angst. So I'm in a constant, infinite state of uncomfortableness. I think I have to be uncomfortable to make, mm-hmm. to make something. And then I'll feel better. And then I'll enjoy it for like a day or two. And then I'll start to feel uncomfortable again because it's like, well, that was two days ago. I haven't done anything recently. That must have been a fluke. So it becomes like a whole hamster wheel of neuroses where I have to keep making something, getting nervous, and then making something again. Mm-hmm. It's not It's mm-hmm. not very relaxing, I'll tell you. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about there is this kind of ever-evolving emotional state that sort of like runs parallel to the creative process, you know? And, you know, I, I think somebody, I, I'd seen this, you know, it was probably on like Pinterest or something, one of these like little illustrations. And it was like, it was like the creative process. And it was like, step one, this is great. This sucks. I suck. Yeah. This isn't so bad. This isn't so bad. Okay, right. this is good again. And and I and I, I like the idea that there is this this evolution where you, you start off with optimism and then it turns completely to pessimism, and you beat yourself up and you beat up all the people around you and then you you sort of start to come around again and make peace with it. And yeah, is that is that kind of how it works? I think that's exactly right. And unfortunately, pessimism lasts a lot longer than optimism. Uh, just like, you know, say depression lasts a lot longer than happiness. I mean, ha- happiness to me is, uh, is actually very dangerous. So I try to avoid it at all costs because I know I'll have it and then I'll lose it. And then I'll be sad that I lost it. So why have it to begin with? So that's how I run my life is to avoid happiness. And I've been very successful at it. That that is the toxic psyche of a creative person. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure. You know, I, I feel the I actually feel the same way. You know, it's like um, this idea that that happiness can can kind of become a sort of anesthetic, and it's 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 really not meant for long periods of time. It's meant for there should just be periods of balance, punctuated by moments of unhappiness and happiness. But the, the, the idea that we should aspire to make happiness, like our sort of regular state uh-huh. is, is a very, um, it's not a useful idea, I think, no, because it's not, it's not, we're, we're not really built for that. You know? No, not, I am not. And clearly you're not. Somebody out there must be. I mean, my wife seems happy, but that's about all I know. Really? <laughs> yes. Well, that's true. She could be, could be pretending. I mean, you know, I, I perceive it as happiness, but I could be completely wrong. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. I wanted to talk about a project that we worked on together. It was a, I mean, I think that th- it's funny, this project probably conformed to that, that um, sort of emotional continuum that, that we just sort of discussed, but um, the United Airlines pitch we worked on together, that was a beast uh, of, a, of a thing to work on. And the the question as I as I wrote it was what was the best moment what was the worst moment and what do you think we learned from it? <laughs> wow, <laughs> you know, oddly enough, I was talking about this pitch with a friend of mine recently, and there the worst moment for me. Let's start with that. Is I remember you used to put your ads up on the wall, 
And then you would leave and then you'd come back and you'd see that they had taken the pin out of your ad and it would be in a pile of rubbish on the floor. That's how they told you. And it was so, I was so, I was as pathetic as the process because I did an ad for Bloody Mary's. I thought I did a great ad for the Bloody Mary and I put it on the wall, very proud. And literally within, I don't even think they waited for me to leave the room. They just took the pin out and the Bloody Mary ad was on the floor. So I hated myself for caring that much about that ad. There were a lot of not great moments in that pitch, but when you and I worked together that, and I'm not just saying that because we're doing this, was one of the better moments because uh, we were able to talk and have fun. Up until that point, I was just sitting in a room alone. So it was, we, you helped make it fun. It was more fun working with you. So I remember, that, I remember that very well. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because first of all, I thought that, I thought that the idea of having this sort of ongoing war room where just random people were just like, you know, the agency is like cranked up to like 150% on this pitch. It was like seven days a week. We had to be there every single day. And, you know, and, and it's like, whenever you had an idea, just go to the war room, pin your idea on the wall and right. somebody will look at it. And anyone that knows anything about how to sell ideas in, in that sort of corporate you know, agency environment knows that's the worst way to ever represent an idea without any kind of voiceover, without any kind of context around it. I mean, like, it's just, it's like, if you have any self-respect, don't put your work up on the wall. <laughs> or if you're feeling that people are watching you, just put up the ideas that aren't going to go through anyway, because <laughs> they're not going to go through. So save, think, save the good stuff for what you can kind of like back channel to somebody. It would be right? better if you didn't even put it on the wall and you just put it right on the ground and skip the step completely. <laughs> <laughs> that would have worked. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's funny because I remember that moment where you and I just decided to start working together. I think it was like it was like a Saturday night. Right. And it was like it was like nine in the evening. And I remember there was like, you know, there was probably a bunch of people in different corners of the agency. And we were just like camped out in this room. And they're like two two writers can have an idea together. Let's write. And I think I think someone had come up with this. Um, someone had realized that they were like a sponsor of like the Olympic team, the Winter Olympics, right? And right. then it was like a whole thing. Like let's just come up with a bunch of like Olympic spots, right? And it was like we sat in a room, came up with this idea where the uh, the ski team you're in the um, baggage claim, and like the the ski bags jam the machine, right? <laughs> and then and the lights go off and everybody's right. upset. <laughs> just like, you know, proud sponsor of the uh, the U.S. ski team. Right. I mean, if we were the type to high five, which we're not, that might have been a moment, a high five moment. But yeah, I thought for sure that was like, oh, how could they not love this? And surely it was in the pile of the Bloody Mary ads and everything else. Yeah. The funny thing, I think, when I look back on that was the sort of morning after. It was like the whole team had flown out to Chicago to present the work. And remember, we went into the war room just to sort of see the final deck. And it was like, where's all the creative? Right. <laughs> I, see, now that was the epitome of clearly we're both masochists because I want I went in there to see if anything I did survived, which clearly it didn't. Or I'm, I don't you might have had one, something that survived. And then I wanted to take in the pain of all the ads that did survive that I wasn't part of. So it really was unhealthy for me. And maybe you felt the same way when you looked at the wall, but. Well, you know, I just, I think I just wanted to understand what we were really working toward. And, yeah. and, and at the end of the day, when it's sort of like, it's a, it's a 130 slide deck right. and 120 of the slides are like, 
charts and graphs and <laughs> right. that exactly. data visualizations and right. that's oh and there's a there's a creative thing here too and you know I, I think that that actually is a good transition to a, a, another topic we can discuss which is what has changed the most in this business since you began that's a good question um i think it used to be much more black and white about what was good and what wasn't good it like there would be the you know the print ad the television commercials and it was all very conceptually oriented. Uh, when you looked at somebody's portfolio, you, you could tell whether somebody could think or not think. And today, it seems that there are so many random pieces, you know, all kinds of tactics and little things. And this idea could be a show. We could make a musical out of it. It could be a book cover. You know, it's like everything becomes 50 million pieces. And then I feel like the idea is not as celebrated as it used to be. Like when I was at Doyle Dane, and you did a good print ad, for example. I mean, I would spend weeks trying to work on the perfect print ad. And then you would put it on your wall and people would come up and they would tell you how good it was and it really meant something. Now I feel like if you do something good, it's like forgotten in seconds. It's like it never existed. So it's a lot of quantity now, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely an obsession with tactics over core ideas, you know, and 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 it, thinking like a big idea could actually change the trajectory of a business over a long period of time. You know, and I love to talk about um I think that like the Dove campaign for real beauty was really powerful and it's like you could understand how I remember it was like 2005 when that came out and they used real women you know, it wasn't models and right. cosmetic beauty ads featuring real women and not, and not models was really at that point in time, kind of radical, you know, and you could see they were really ahead of their time. And you could see how th this is a, a 20, 25 year idea. And, you know, I think to largely to Ogilvy's credit and to Unilever's credit, they saw the potential of what that could be and how that could really differentiate Dove from a lot of those competitors. And they were really ahead of their time in terms of understanding that identity was going to be a big issue in our culture. And they really were at the, at the right point in time to start talking about that. That's the other thing is I don't know if people recognize, um, I'm not saying everybody, there's a lot of talented people, but recognize a good idea as much as they did in the earlier years. Like you said, tactics are almost more important than ideas. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, what has been your fondest memory in the industry and why? That's, that's, a, that's a good question. Well, uh, it's, I could, guess I could ask, answer that in two ways. First of all, my fondest memory is, you know, I didn't know the first thing about writing. I had no idea how to write. And I think I'd mentioned this to you before, but for the first 10 years, if not longer, I would come up with ads that required no words, which in itself was a gift because somehow I managed to really fool people for quite a while. So a fond memory personally was when I decided I'm a writer, I really should learn how to write because it really was a fluke that I was in advertising at all. So I started to take um, short story writing and that changed advertising for me because I no longer tried to write like an advertising person and I tried to write more like a writer. And to that point, I think one of my favorite things that I worked on was a children's audio bedtime story. It was like a podcast of 20 chapters for Goodnight Diapers. And the story was about um, this kid who was on this bed that flew and he you know, flew around into all kinds of surreal worlds. And I was able to combine my two worlds. I was able to combine the advertising world 
and the writing world into one assignment. So it was when the best assignments are when the two come together. And also, you know, in terms of bringing yourself into it, I was able to create the childhood I kind of wished I had. Not, not that I had a terrible childhood in case my mother happens to be listening to this, but um, I was able to rewrite my childhood and put a lot of my own stuff into the story. Uh, so it became very personal. Yeah, that's probably the best project I worked on. And nobody knew we were doing it. There was nobody involved. There was like three people. We did it. We showed the client. We made it. Every week we would make two chapters and we'd have a great spread of locks and bagels every Every week, that was a big perk. It was the best. It was like being in your friend's basement and nobody knew what the hell you were doing. And then you just made something. So listen, I, I want to shift a little bit to some, you know, these have been sort of open-ended questions. I have some more sort of like topic-based ones that are sort of more crafted in terms of what, you know, I think I'm trying to get out of you. So this first um, one is sort of talks about art and craft. Art needs craft, but craft doesn't necessarily need art. How do you reconcile finding yourself in a situation where sometimes you're being valued for your craft skills as opposed to your art? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I don't feel particularly good when there's no, some kind of art, even though we are in a business and we're selling products, if there's no artistry to it, then I just feel like, well, I might as, be, might as well be, you know, I mean, nothing, a plumber or something. I just feel like I'm going about it. I'm making it. I'm making it correctly. But if it has no soul, then I feel kind of empty. I mean, I've, I obviously will do it and I've done both. But when I could, I don't feel good when I can't put something artistic or something of myself into it. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. That's a good answer. This next question concerns mentors and allies. And, you know, one of my mentors uh, is a guy called David Shanks, and he works at this agency called Oliver. He once gave me good advice. Uh, no one succeeds alone, which I thought was just a great line. My question then is, who are some of the people who've helped you succeed and how have they helped you along the way? That's a good question because I don't really know who I would see as a mentor. I would say the agency that really helped me the most was MVBMS, which is Messner, which then became Euro, which is now Havas. But when I worked there, the people running it were all very talented, creative people. It was like Ron Berger and Tom Messner. They kind of let you, it was a really smart agency and they let you do what you did and then they would steer it, but they didn't force themselves on you. They didn't nitpick things. It wasn't about more. It was just about the right thing. So I'd say that as an agency defined my style because their whole thing was, it's great to win awards, but it's about solving the problem as best as you can in the most intelligent way possible. And then after that, it wasn't advertising that inspired me. It was more authors that would inspire me than it was people in advertising. Uh, there was one writer in particular, I'm sorry, I just realized, uh, Neil Gomberg, who probably doesn't even know who I am, but when I first started Doyle Dane, he was a writer there, and I used to take his copy home at night and read it over and over and over because I wanted to write like he did. So now that I think about it, he probably was the closest, and he didn't even know who I probably existed. It's, it's so funny. I used, actually used to work with Neil at Dentsu, and I, his office was actually right across from mine. And he's just one of the funniest people and an amazing musician. I don't know if people know that, but he actually has this had this little side career as like a singer-songwriter. And um, 
it's su- super nice guy. I think he's not in the business anymore, yeah. but I'm um, super, super great dude. The other thing, Tom Mesner, I have a really funny Tom Mesner story. He and I became connected. He'd been writing this, I think like every week he was writing an ad week back in like 2005 or something. And I probably sent him an email about something he wrote and we kind of got to talking Long story short, I ended up in this weekly Scrabble game with Tom Mesner and Neil wow. French. And I felt, I mean, both of these guys were sort of heroes to me. And I, I just couldn't believe that we were playing like Scrabulous on Facebook. <laughs> That's <laughs> like once great. A, once a week. And and Neil would just kick our asses every single, every single time. And Tom basically at some point uh, wrote this off-Broadway play. He invited me to see it. So I go to the play and there was like a little party afterwards and I'm sitting with him at this, at, it was, it was an incredible experience. I'm like this youngish copywriter at BBDO and I'm, I'm sitting at this table with like um, it's, it's Mesner. It's his wife. Um, Ron Berger's there. Bob Cooperman is there. Colleen Chestnut is, I mean like this table of like New York advertising luminaries. And like, I'm just like nobody. And Mesner like leans over to me and like, you could see, he's like, how the hell does Neil keep beating us in Scrabble? (laughs) You know, he's like, he just, he's an insanely talented Scrabble player. Well, about, I guess like later that year, I went on a trip to Spain and my wife and I visited Neil French in his villa in, uh, in Mallorca. And Neil basically admitted to me that there was some website that allowed you to cheat on Scrabble where uh, you would basically just like put your tiles in and it would just generate all the words that were possible. That's and, great. And so the whole thing, like I, I've, I've never told anyone this. I mean, I'm sure that like minister should probably, he'll be able to sort of uh, have a little more peace with himself knowing that like it, he really isn't that inadequate a Scrabble player, but like Frenchie was kind of not playing fairly. <laughs> That's hysterical. And, you know, Tom Messer's brilliant also. So I'm sure this drove him insane. The fact that he was losing must have drove him crazy. That's really yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, Tom Messner was a very interesting guy to show work to because uh, you would show him work and he'd be like, well, what do I, you know, what do I know? I mean, he wouldn't really want to give his opinion one way or the other. And I'm like, well, you are running the agency. So, and he would be like, well, if you like it, it's good. If you don't, then not like, it's just, and then while you're showing him work, he would take money out of his wallet and he would start laying it out in front of you like it was Monopoly money, like he put the ones and the fives. And, and, and then, you know, he had like this, the light would be shining through this one piece of hair on his head. And like the whole thing was surreal, but he was a great writer who just didn't force his style on you, which is what I took away from it, you know? Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about fear. Is it a motivator or a debilitator? Wow. See, why do you keep surrounding with neuroses and fear? And I'm getting, I'm getting fearful about this whole thing. Um, I used to think it was a great motivator. When I was younger, I thought fear was great. Now I think fear is the worst way to possibly make a decision. I realized that every fear-based decision I made, for the most part, was the wrong decision. And now I try to listen to my gut more than my head. Just, you know, I try to do what I genuinely want to do rather than do what I think I should do because I'm nervous that um, something bad will happen if I don't do it. So I flipped as I got older that fear, I go opposite to fear. I still feel it, but I try to go opposite. Interesting. You know, Neil French said to me once, 
When you think you're right, you are. And whatever price you have to pay for that is the price of self-belief. Oh. And and I I, th- I think that um, when circumstances go put put you into a more sort of fearful mindset, it's important to remember that. That's a great. Um, that's a good way of putting it. So you're you're basing your choices and your decisions on what you believe, as opposed to trying to react to the ephemera of circumstance. You know. Well, I almost feel like my gut and my subconscious are smarter than I am, and I needed to. Ca- I have to catch up to it because the bottom line is. I think you do know what to do. And then everything, then all these other voices get involved and you forget. So in some ways, getting older is a, is a good thing because you start to realize, I want to do things that make me happy or not happy, happier. Relatively. Relatively, yes. Integrity. How important is it? And what's it worth to you? Not you the least. You- no. <laughs> <laughs> do you still have it? I have no interest. No, um... It means a lot to me, uh, probably more than I'd like it to be. Like a lot of times people will say to me, you know, like I freelance now and they'll go, well, you know, you don't have to care as much. You're a freelancer. And that's, that's not true for me at all. I care and it, it's important for me to do a good job more so now than ever before. I just have to, I feel like I have to do a good job for somebody, especially now. I don't feel good. When I have no, when the integrity kind of diminishes, I I feel bad. I don't feel good about it. Hmm. So I guess it's very important. Bill Burnback once said, principles endure, formulas do not. What are some of the principles that have served you over the course of your career? I used to go into a meeting and always assume everybody else knew more than I did. And then over time, you kind of sit back and realize they don't. And in many cases... Nobody realizes what they're doing. And I'm also realized the more people in a room, the less chance of something good is going to happen. So I would say I'm less intimidated now than I used to be because I realized that I may know as much, if not more, in many cases than I used to. So again, it comes back to your instincts and listening to that and realizing nobody knows, you know, so you might as well go with what you believe. Mm-hmm. Good answer. Creative rituals. Do you have any specific habits that are necessary for you to uh, do the work, be creative, get into the zone? Besides panic and fear, back to fear. Um, well, one of the rituals is I do meet with a, a writer every two weeks, you know, and try to write anything other than advertising every week or, you know, every other week or something like that. My main ritual is I always start off this. I do tend to start off the same way as I don't care about details. I don't care about what the assignment in the specifically it's about. I like my rituals to start with the broad ideas, the broad strokes. And my partner and I will work on a Google doc and just start by ignoring everything except for what the bigger thought would be. The last thing I do is actually think about what we're supposed to say. Um, <laughs> so I, I yeah. kind of free myself up that way by not thinking about it too much. I think that's good. You know, um, I, I know that Susan Cradle um, had talked about it as thinking above the brief, hmm. exactly. you know, and I, I think, I think that that's really, um, that that's really good advice. You know, let's move along now to um, this is kind of like the third bit, I think uh, in, in the podcast, <laughs> it's a bit of a game. I'm calling it, False equivalence, right? 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some choices and just, you know, off the cuff, just choose one or the other. And it's just a way to reveal a little bit of your personality. Interesting. This really is like therapy, except, you know, I'm not charged <laughs> for this, I'm assuming. It's a, it's a projection technique that I've come uh-huh. up with to really okay. understand how, how broken you are inside. <laughs> okay. That's good. All right. Chemistry or collaboration? Collaboration. David Ogilvy or Bill Burnback? Bill Burnback. Kugel or Kreplach? Oh, I don't really like either. I'll go with Kreplach. I like the way it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make it Kreplach or Rugela. Uh, I like Rugela. Rugela. Love Rugela. Yes. All right. Apricot. How about in that case, we're going to just add this as, a, as another option. Babka or Baklava? I love babka because, not because of what it tastes like, but the word babka is fantastic. And Great I once, word. And uh, I once was having dinner with somebody and the person was obsessed with babka. And they kept repeating babka, babka, you must try the chocolate babka. And uh, it made the whole night for me. I mean, she there said There was a babka. Seinfeld about that, right? Yeah, there I think there Seinfeld. is. Yeah. The babka, yeah. Really, they had a hair in the babka. <laughs> 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 um, okay, moving along, moving along, because it's supposed to be fast. TV okay. or out of home? Uh, out of home. J.D. Salinger or Philip Roth? Salinger. Can Lions or DNAD? Uh, I think the DNAD. Upper West Side or Lower East Side? Lower East Side. Rich Siegel or George Tannenbaum? George Tannenbaum. David Bowie or Lady Gaga? Ooh, I have to go David Bowie. Pencil or pen? Pen. Nice. That's cool. All right. I, I guess, that the, you know, we're going to just start to wrap this up now. Would you like to share a passage of something you've written that you're really proud of? Oh, all right. Well, um, so the pharmacist's daughter, I wrap a baby's laugh in a blue box for my gal and say, happy birthday, sweetie. I love you more than real whipped cream. She tears paper in different directions. The laugh fills the room with buds of possibility, with beginnings that smell of babies' heads. A scowl beats her smile into a frown. No card, she says. I said, I love you, I say. You didn't take the time to write it down, she says. Words in the air are nowhere to be found. Ink is permanent like teeth, she says, like it's obvious. I take out a ballpoint pen and start to write, I love you on my face. I didn't get past I. My gal tightens her slender hand around my wrist, cutting off my circulation and says, it's too late for that. Her bracelets bang into each other. They bang into me. She's in my bones. I smother a baby's laugh with a pillow. It doesn't take long. There's little fight in that kid. The laugh cries until it's silent. Wow. I remember um, you shared that with me and I just, I was just floored by the, the whole story. I mean, it just, not copywriting art. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice of you. Yeah. I mean, it was very sad. It was super satisfying. Um, and you're right. That was like nice to just write anything I felt like writing, you know, other than being told what to write. All right. Well, I guess before we conclude, there's just sort of, I guess, one last question. Because, you know, I, I wanted one of the reasons behind this podcast is sort of this this recognition that people aren't getting like the same level of mentorship that they were once getting just in, in, in all forms of creative endeavors. The, the question really is meant for people that are, are starting out or they're, they're in the middle of their career and, you know, it, it can be tough 
And sometimes you just need to hear a, a nugget of wisdom from somebody that has kind of done what you envy or done what you become the person you wish you could be. What advice would you would you give your younger self knowing what you now know? I wish and I listened to the to the voice in the in my head more than I did. I wish I went with my gut to go back to something we talked about previously, then let fear make decisions for me. If I had to go back, I think people actually respect you when you do voice an opinion that's different than theirs. And I wish I did that more. I'm doing it now and it feels so much better. So I guess believing in myself would have been nice earlier on. Hmm. Awesome. That's good advice. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this chat with me. Yes, thank you. This was fun. To learn more about the CLL podcast and its guests, please visit creativelifelessons.co. Creative Life Lessons was created by Penn Lee and Lyle Schemmer and is executive produced by Paul Greco and Jack Bradley. Audio engineering and voiceover provided by Jesse Marks. No part of this podcast may be reproduced in whole or in part in any manner without the permission of CLL Productions. 